So good evening, everyone. I know it's the end of a long day. <laughs> kind of feels like it sometimes. And tonight I was thinking about what to share. I was thinking what would be the most important thing to kind of try to communicate or talk about together to share with you. And I think I want to talk about metta, but I want to talk about it in a way, it's wise metta, metta infused with wisdom and compassion. And I think that in some way, this is a part where we can get uh, mixed up. But I'd like to begin because I was thinking earlier about, you know, this prophecy about a future Buddha who's supposed to come. And I thought that this prophecy, Maitreya is the name of this future Buddha. Some of you may uh, know about Maitreya. His name, again, is derived from the Sanskrit word Maitri, which means universal love. And they say that this will be the fifth Buddha, the next Buddha to appear in this world during this eon. An eon is a, a sort of an incalculable period of time, right? Huge, that, I can't even fathom it. Whole universal system being born, coming into existence, and then dying out. Uh, billions of years, something like that. And they say that Maitreya is also called the Metta Buddha and also Laughing Buddha. And um, so in the, I thought that this was only in the Tibetan tradition, but I was talking to one of our resident scholars here, Gil, and he said, no, Maitreya is also in Theravadan Buddhism. There's, there's teachings about Maitreya. And they say that there will be a time where Shakyamuni Buddha, his teachings will completely die out. There will be a time, they call it the dark age, no path, meaning no path to the end of suffering. No path to happiness, no, no known path. And that they say at this point, spontaneously moved by his overwhelming compassion, Maitreya will manifest in our world as a radiantly beautiful spiritual teacher, inspiring beings to practice the path of virtue, especially the path of loving kindness. And so I, I think some comfort in that little... <laughs> That story, like, oh, this is nice. So the future Buddha, the future Buddha will come. And you see these statues all over at the land of medicine Buddha. They have the biggest Maitreya statue. He sits in a chair and it's kind of radiant, often always golden colored with bright eyes. And there's songs and mantras and whole practices done in, in different traditions to sort of honor Maitreya, this future Buddha who's coming. So that's nice to think about that. But here we are on retreat. (laughs) You know, going along in our our own way, sort of plodding along here. And in some way, retreats are very humbling. You kind of feel that yet a little bit? Like, wow. (laughs) You know, somebody, I don't remember the teacher, they said self-realization is always bad news. (laughs) Something like that. It's like, wow, I thought I was so loving, wow. watching our mind all day long. It's like, my goodness, there's a lot of work to do here. But in some way, that's what retreats are about. You know, retreats are they're shamanic to me. We go into the underworld of the mind here. right? We go into the places that are unconscious. 
right? The locked doors, the, the attics in the house, you know, the, the dusty rooms. We, we sort of open up, like creak them open. What's in here? Well, kind of a lot of ghosts and stuff, a lot of dirt and junk and <laughs> old Coke bottles. And, <laughs> you know, we sort of open the door. But we have to be willing to kind of go into the underworld a little bit. And we, we, we sort of meet our demons on retreat. And the demons are these voices in the mind, these habitual stories that we tell, these uh, painful stories that we get stuck into. And we all have them. We all experience that. You know, we take inventory of our life in some way. What's not working is highlighted. We can feel that something's wrong when this process is happening. Like I just wanted to be happy. I imagine my retreat, I'd be so blissful eating my organic kale in the sun at Spirit Rock. And then here we are like kind of facing something that's really difficult, like really heavy, a story or, or a situation in our lives that needs our attention, right? Some, something that's being highlighted that's painful, some stuckness usually. So in some way, retreats are a time of courage because we have to kind of be willing to to look, right? We can be scared of the ghost for a long time, but one, one day we get brave and go, I'm going in that attic and see what's up there, right? I hear bumps and screams and, okay, let's just take a look, right? It's never really as bad as we think it is, you know? Our imagination is far worse than the reality, usually, which is good news. So it reminds me of this Wendell Berry poem, To Go Into the Dark. He says, To go into the dark with the light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. So we, we sort of understand that when we come on retreat, we work with the shadows, we work with the difficult here. Sometimes we have retreats that are very blissful and beautiful. And that's, that's also very healing. But for many of us, it's a mixture of both. It's a mixture of having these moments where we feel very connected, very awake, very touched by life. And then we have these moments where it's very hard, something's coming up that is difficult. And metta is one of these practices that helps us in these times. We learn through metta. We learn through love, working with our, our ghosts, going into these places that we may not have ever visited or we may not even have known were there. It's important to bring this out, to see things that are causing suffering, you know, when I first used to hear the Buddha's teachings, when I was very young, I'd go on these very long retreats and I would get very irritated. I remember I was on a three-month course at Insight Meditation Society in my, I think I was early 20s. They talked about suffering at every single Dharma talk for three months, I felt like. And I remember during the course the end, I was like, that's it. I don't want to hear about the suffering anymore, right? But I was full of suffering, but somehow I couldn't understand how, like, we keep talking about this, but I remember finally having an interview with my teacher, Joseph, and he said, Spring, we're highlighting something that where we're, we're stuck. 
Because when we see it, we can get free. But if we don't, if it's not brought into consciousness, it's like we're dancing in the dark. We don't see this. We don't see what's really happening. You can't heal something you can't see, right? So it was important in some way. But metta helps us in so many ways. But in our culture, we have a lot of misunderstandings about love. I think our culture is obsessed with love, don't you think, on some level, right? Love, 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 their songs, movies, right? And uh, it's usually associated with romantic love. Or, you know, uh, no wonder we become cynical when we think that that's all it's about. Like, oh, is this, is this all it is about? And romantic love can be beautiful. But that's just one aspect of this, this quality of metta, which is boundless. It's far beyond our love for the individual person that we're in a relationship with. It's a quality... Metta has the quality of the sun. It shines on everyone, right? It's big, it's radiant heart. Romantic love is a little bit fickle. It kind of goes, I like you, I like you, mm, not you. And, you know, it's, it's, it's conditional often, you could say. And so we get really confused by that. You know, ultimately, we often, like Donald mentioned, we have attachment. We love with conditions, you know, so we're, so we're looking at it at a more expanded view tonight, what I call wise love. We often look for love in all the wrong places. Remember that song? It was like singing about looking, going to a bar, I think, with one place or here. Well, that's kind of us, right? We're like, is it here, right? Is, it, is this a path? Is this going to get it? You know, we're all looking for this quality, but we don't recognize that it's in us. This is a huge, huge uh, realization that I talked about um, and I discovered and I talk about it a lot in my own discovery. Um, Metta is this quality that we generate. It comes from us. That's why when we sit here, we can turn it on. We can learn to, to practice it, right? This comes from our own heart, our own, our own mind. This was a huge relief for me when I first learned the practice of metta. Because then I thought, wow, I don't have to wait for somebody else to go, I love you. (laughs) That may happen, that may not. You know how people are. (laughs) One day it's this, the next day it's that. Right? But if you love you, problem solved. (laughs) This was a huge, I don't know if you can get that. Like, we can do that. (laughs) That's the fruit of the practice here. I was so happy when I heard that. It felt like as if something had been liberated and I took the practice up with my whole heart. You know, because we all have trauma. I mean, my own childhood was so painful, so many ups and downs and parents not there and addiction issues. So I kind of came with this deficit like many of us do, right? Like needing, needing attention, needing, needing some kind of com- comfort. Of course, we all do. On some level, we all need that. But I remember when I, I start, first started practicing metta and I, I saw that I could love myself sitting alone on a cushion. And I thought, oh, this is great. And I could, and I could just develop more and more and more. And that in my worst moment, I could be there for myself. And that every time I looked out, I would, I would talk to myself in and do more metta. And I was like, it's okay. I love you, though. You know, that started to become a mantra. But I love you, Spring. That was my own inner, it's one of my phrases for a while, right? 
the whole world abandons you, but you won't, right? And that there's a stability in that. There's a real stability in that. I like this Hopi creation story. So the creator gathered all of creation and said, I want to hide something from the humans until they're ready for it. It is the realization that they create their own reality. The eagle said, give it to me, I'll take it to the moon. The creator said, no, one day they will go there and find it. The salmon said, I'll take it and I'll bury it at the bottom of the ocean. The creator said, no, no, they will go there too. The buffalo said, I will bury it out on the great plains. The creator said, they will cut into the skin of the earth and find it there. Grandmother Mole, who lives in the breast of Mother Earth and who has no physical eyes but sees with spiritual eyes, said, put it inside of them. And the Creator said, it is done. (laughs) And I like that because I think the Hopis were onto something that this love is inside of us. It's like the jewel in the lotus, right, that we keep, we keep pointing to and there's these teachings again and again about this is your true nature, right? What we're doing here, I guess I use the word cultivate a lot and that's one way to talk about metta, but what we're really doing is uncovering what's already there. It's already in you, right? You don't have to look too far and wide to find this, this innate love, this compassion, this wisdom, it's already in there. It's like this little, this light in there. And what we're doing is uncovering all of the layers. And there are many layers, right? And we uncover this layer, and then there's another one, right? And then we uncover that one. But every time we uncover one, it's more freedom, and, and it's like the light starts to shine through, like a window pane, right? And we're like, oh, okay, that was another la- layer, right? But the truth is, it's inside of us. And this is really important to see again and again and again. Not just one time, many times, many times, many times. So, that's one of the first aspects of the wise love that I wanted to really emphasize is that it's you. You're the one. And we hear this a lot. You're the one you've been waiting for, right? (laughs) How many of you have (laughs) heard that, right? Everybody is like, yes, I am the one, right? In some way it's so simple, but isn't it great? Because you don't have to wait for somebody else. Because that's not a very powerful place, right? When you're waiting for someone else. It's us. So the love comes for us. We have, and we have to learn to love ourselves. I think this is what the, the, the thing that is the most surprising about my teachings is that really compassion, self-compassion and self-love is the core of what I teach. So we have a center in Oakland and I spend, I don't know, maybe 95% of my teachings is on this topic. Even when I come prepared with a whole other elaborate talk, I end up being like, love yourself. Like, and everyone's like, yes, yeah, you know. It just keeps coming. I'm like, how did I end up talking about that again, right? I was going to talk about, you know, some Buddhist psychology, philosophy, you know. And it always comes down to that because in the end, I feel like that's, what, that's what's needed. You know, that's what's needed. 
Because if you're serious about your awakening, if you're serious about your freedom, right? And if you've ever made a declaration, I will be free one day, I want to be free. If you've kind of said that or you're putting that out there, then be careful what you ask for. Because everything that is in the way of that arises. And we like, that's a good thing. It's not to be afraid. But when the monsters come and it gets very difficult, you have to have some real tools. You have to have your wise meta right here in your, in your back pocket, right? In your side pocket as your armor. And then the other side, you have really great compassion. Because to deal with the madness of the mind, those are your greatest allies. And I think about that a lot with the Buddha. You know, I'm sure you've heard the story of his fierce night, great night of awakening under the Bodhi tree. Right? And there's so many different texts, and I, I love the different takes, Thich Nhat Hanh's version and the Tibetan version, and the, you know. But they all converge at the same place. He had an epic battle with the fiercest demon, the king of all, the Maras, which Mara sort of represents greed, hatred, and delusion. Has anyone had any battles with Mara today? It's the same Mara. Basically, that's what happened to the Buddha sitting on the seat, attempting to awaken, just like you sit on your seat here. Meditation would be great if we didn't have terrible mind states, right? (laughs) We'd sit here all day. But something always out of the emptiness arises to knock us off our seat. So there's the Buddha under the Bodhi tree, committed to awakening, going, whatever arises, I'm going to sit. Whatever mind state, and here comes rage and hatred and anger. Right? And they said he was attacked in all directions, thousands of miles, throwing heaps of you know, guns and all kinds of fireballs. Even one text said it was hurling mountains at him. Right? I don't know how that's possible, but <laughs> you know these stories. <laughs> we get it, right? We're being attacked. And that he didn't fight back. All these weapons launched. He just put up his hand with Meta, and all the weapons turned into flowers, right? So he beat that one with love. And then the lust came, Mara's daughters, you know, and came and tried to seduce him off the seat. He passed that test. And then power, right? Oh, you could get power. Why are you sitting here? You could become very powerful, right? That's another, you know... It's a tangle we can go into, right? I beat that one. And then the last, you know, they say is self-doubt. Like, what right do you have to be free? You know, get, get back in there and suffer like everyone else. Like, what, you know, what, what right do you have? But all of these he met with Metta, and that's the point of the story in some way, in my mind. That's the core teaching, that he didn't fight back. He didn't, he didn't attack the rage. He didn't go crazy. You know, we're fighters, right? Something comes at us, we get our guns out, (laughs) right? We're ready. We're ready to fight. This is not really the way. This is why metta is so powerful, because you meet insanity with love. You know, we have to learn that. We meet the insanity with love. I think the other day I talked about being, when my biggest insight was seeing people's progression on the spiritual path and how those who had a lot of self-love and a lot of compassion, they would go kind of quickly through stages, 
of insight. You know, those who had sort of this ability to have this underlying well of, of self-confidence, right? They viewed themselves well, right? They had a, a sense of like, okay, I can do this. I always wish my grandmother, she's near death now, but I always wish that my grandmother, I could have exposed her to Buddhism because um, in spite of just so many obstacles, her mind was very strong and always resonated with love and compassion. Like even the most difficult situation, when I mean, she was like a maid for 30 years, raised seven kids, her husband ran off on her in the Navy. I mean, one, I mean, we couldn't bear it, you know, on some level of the story. I'm like, how did you do it? You know, like that, you know how we hear from our ancestors, those kind of sufferings. And we're like, oh my gosh. And she's always, and even when I was a little girl, she was always like, well, let's keep on keeping on. Let's make some cookies. Janie's in the hospital. Let's take them to her. And I'd be like, <laughs> look, how could you be thinking about others right now, right? And, 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 you know, she just had this, like, way of nothing got her down, right? And she attributed all of it to Jesus, who was a very devout Christian. Not one of those judgmental ones at all. Like tremendous love for anybody who came. You didn't have to agree with her. She didn't care. She had this, you know, root, solid love and compassion. And she was like, well, let's just keep on going. Get up and start again, you know, and had this sort of, and I always thought, wow, if she really had been a Dharma practitioner, she would have went far. (laughs) Because no matter what her mind, what she encountered, she would have just kept sitting through it, right? And in the end, that's, that's where we're not capsizing. You see, the more we're able to sit and go, wait, this is just, let's just keep on going, right? And we, we let that story go, right? And we let that one go, right? Emotions come and the storms, right, come and the rage comes and anger comes and hatred and self-hatred, right? And, we, and if we don't buy into it, we can keep on going. We're in our little canoe, we're upright, like, well, let's go. You know, and then to not only have the ability to be upright, but to then help others. To watch out on the left, right? Pull people out, with, get a rope, and to help them even. That's beautiful. This is important. So I'm sad, but also confident that she'll get what she needs to get because she already had some truth in her. Rather I exposed her to the Dharma or not, she understood these principles. She, she knew that the mind of compassion was beautiful. That was, that was peace. She knew metta had peace in it for her. So that's why it's important and how it links with mindfulness. That's why they're so connected. The mind that's filled with loving awareness can meet any challenge, Right? It's not reacting to the, the moods that happen. It doesn't react to the visitors that come. All of the different mind states that come and go, that, that knock us down, all the stories. Right? So that's another aspect of the wisdom part of it. Right? The mind that's open and receptive. We learn, we can, we can allow these things to move through us. This is important. You know, another aspect of metta that I've seen have a very big impact and why I always say it's the medicine for the Western mind is because there's this thing with, in our culture, including myself, where the mind predominates towards self-hatred. There's a critical 
voice that it happens here, that I've, after traveling and living in other parts of the world, they don't have that so much. I'll give you an example of that, the Dalai Lama. I don't know when it was that they, were, they went to the conference with him in India. Mm. Was that in 80? No, it was 94, I think. Yeah, right. 1994, many of the teachers, uh, Spirit Rock teachers, some of the senior teachers, and many of the Western Vipassana teachers, some of the most well-known ones, they were invited by His Holiness to go to India for a conference with him and to just, you know, believe it or not, he really, he's interested in all this. Like, well, what's happening there? You know, like, kind of like that. So they had this conference, and basically he asked that question, so what's the biggest challenge for your students? What do you, what as teachers do you face the most? And they all said self-hatred. He didn't know what that meant. And it took, I think, 15 or 20 minutes with a translator to define what that meant. And then he was like, oh, to hate the self? And then it was just kind of shock. Like, that's wrong. Like, what? Like, we don't have this. Like, what, why would you hate yourself? Like, what? And it went back and forth. And I think this is also what Sylvia was saying and Jack was saying that he just couldn't find, like, why would they do that? Hate themselves. Like, this is a precious human birth, right? And it's just the way that our minds are, it's a conditioning. Each culture has a thread of some conditioning. So, um, Metta is an antidote to that. Metta begins to soften that, layer by layer by layer. And this sickness, I call it this illness of the mind that turns against itself in this way, and it's like the inner critic is a word for it, right? I mean, there's all kinds of words. You know that narrator, have you noticed the narrator that kicks on as soon as there's consciousness? Like, hello, here I am, commenting on every single thing. Right? It's that that turns violent. Right? And then the thinking becomes violent and dark. And we don't notice this for long periods. It often takes a meta retreat to highlight what's happening in the mind. Meta becomes the light that shines on it. It's like, oh my gosh, look at all that in there. What is this? And then we can transform it when we see it. This is even something I work with youth. I teach the teen retreat here at Spirit Rock. Once a year, I teach a week-long teen retreat. And even though I'm so busy, I feel very committed to the, the next generation of Buddhas. When I see those young people practicing, I just get happy. Like, we need you. Hurry up, keep practicing. But I'll see this precious little 14-year-old, and I think, oh, she's so cute, or him, or whatever, and then I'll look on their interview sheet and talk to them and they're full of self-hatred and suffering from anorexia on all these medications. And I'll be like, but your, your parents are spirit rock people. You're, you know, they're psychologists. How did, this is happening to you already? You're, you're like, this is as good as it gets on some level, right? What about the rest of the teenagers? You know, I think, oh my God, it's already happening to you, right? This, this way. Do you know what I mean, what I'm talking about? This way of... So it's just like something that we have to heal. So this is a big part of, of learning through this practice. And I think this is why there's a huge movement in Vipassana communities. You will see a huge upsurge of meta practices, meta retreats. I mean, I'm teaching another meta course just next month here, right? Classes, day long, there's a huge need right, and all of the communities of Vipassana teachers are like, yeah, I think that we actually need this as a basis for the development of real insight, 
real insight. We have to learn to let go, but if we don't have enough love there, we can't actually. We get stuck, we capsize, and we can't get the boat upright. Right? We just stay, and we stay for long periods on the side. You know, we can't, we can't get it, and we get stuck, and we, 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 we suffer in that. But the learning is possible, and we are learning. And the more that this quality of compassion and metta is there, the better. Another, I'm sure you guys have heard this quote, <laughs> Autobiography in Five Short Chapters by Portia Nelson. I've heard it so many times, but I just like it because I feel like this is where we are on some level. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I cannot believe I am in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. (laughs) Amen to that, right? So that's the way that's what we're doing. We just learn that way, right? We learn, we learn. But I think that one of the beautiful things about metta is that it gives me a certain level of my mind is my responsibility. If I think you're my problem, I'm hopeless. If I think I need you to open your heart and do all this stuff and, and be something, it, <laughs> it's like I'm fall, I fell in the hole, right? I, I, you know, it's like, oh, my mind is my responsibility. My freedom is my responsibility. Right? It's not dependent on anyone around me. You know, we can be well supported by people. That's beautiful. But in the end, it's our mind, it's our garden. Right? We're cultivating this inner beauty. Uh, Sayadaw Upandita, this kind of fearsome Burmese master teacher that he's taught many of the senior teachers. I was once on a six-week retreat with him, and he said, he said uh, that... This meditation practice is like going to the beauty parlor for the inside. I thought that was cute, coming from a 90-year-old Burmese monk. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, I was like, I get it, I get it. And, and he was very encouraging of the practice, because he was, you know, there was, you see these seeds, you see these f- seeds sprout over time. You've probably seen them here moments, right? Where the mind is just not caught in a story. Has anyone had one moment? Please tell me about one moment like that in the last 72 hours. <laughs> right, good. Right? It's like we catch a glimpse, the window opens, right? For a moment, we're like, it's freedom right there. <laughs> right? The mind's not fighting with anything. It's just is. 
state of calmness. It's important to have those moments again and again. You know, this is what helps us. So we, so we practice. We start to take our practice into every area of our life, and this is where the compassion comes in. Metta turned towards suffering has a flavor of compassion. Right? So if you're feeling suffering arising, stories in the mind, I mean, we, we face a lot on retreat. It's not only our stories. It's the stories of our ancestors. Has anybody felt they've been tangled up with their parents suffering while they're here, or grandparents, or their children, or maybe your grandchildren, maybe? Right? We, we have a lot to think about. So when we sit on retreat, we... we do a life review. This all starts to play out. Suddenly we're sitting here and we remember being in the third grade and being humiliated in the basketball court or something, right? It's all in there. And that's the beautiful thing about metta is it's this purification practice. And it's a little bit of an accelerated one. If you came to this, you sort of stepped on the gas pedal a little bit. Right? Not to scare anyone, that's not the point. But you, you put a highlight on something. It's like, oh, you want to go through the channel of the heart? Well, hold on, right? This is a, anything that's obstructing the layers we see closer, right? So the purification can get intense. Meta retreats that I've been on before have been wild, my own, right? Sometimes I, would, I remember being on a meta retreat and it was all kinds of things, energetic phenomena happening. I remember getting sick and purging one day, all these old memories. I actually physically got sick. Some of you have been very nauseous. I've reported that here, right? This is a phenomenon and the body starts to open. Not only does your mind start to clear out, this sort of mind dump happens, but the body, if you sit, also everything starts to unravel. Old pains, aches. We don't understand all of a sudden we'll be sitting and there might be a stabbing sensation. Like, what is that? Right? The body is even going through its purification, letting go of energy. This is a really interesting part of the path, the mind and the body purifying together. But our society needs more love than ever before. You know, that's why I also feel so happier here. There's a certain comfort, like, yes, the retreats are full. Yes, you know, we're, we're doing our part. The Dalai Lama, he writes, our need for love. Ultimately, the reason why love and compassion bring the greatest happiness is simply that our nature cherishes them above all else. The need for love lies at the very foundation of human existence. It results from the profound interdependence we all share with one another. However capable and skillful an individual may be, left alone he or she will not survive. However vigorous and independent one may feel during the most prosperous periods of life, when one is sick, very young, or very old, one must depend on the love and support of others. And that's true, right? Our children need to be loved and supported. Our elders need to be cared for. We need to be cared for. In our society, you know, we need kindness right now. We need metabuddhas. We need many Maitreyas. You are Maitreyas, right? On some level, you are 
You are that. Another story that I, I like, this was from the Sun magazine, and it touched me, this letter written by Erica Trafton from the Bay Area, so I, I stuck out in my mind. Here goes the story, the letter actually, in the form of a story. Am I gorgeous? My child asks, drawing the words out like pulled taffy. Yes, I say, you are. The pink and teal dress is probably made of highly flammable material. Some chemist's approximation of tully and satin. Pudgy fingers decorated with pink polish trace the sequins on the bodice. I love this. A giant pair of bubblegum pink wings flap slowly. Little feet dance in sparkly red slippers. I am just like a real princess. Yes, I say, you are. Thick blonde hair, thick blonde hair, blue eyes, rosy cheeks, and flawless skin. This child is the American epitome of beauty. This child, my son. He is four years old and prefers to wear dresses. Maybe it's a phase. Maybe not. Even as I wonder at how I produce such an angelic-looking creature, I wish he would put on some pants and go back to playing with toy tractors. Not because it matters to me, honestly, it doesn't, but because I'm already hearing in my head the name calling he will face in kindergarten. Many adults already seem disturbed by the dresses. Strangers utter awkward apologies when they realize he's not female. This culture wants little boys to dream only of baseballs, trucks, trains. This culture has no room for little boys who want to be gorgeous. He picks up a parcel a neighbor gave him and opens it jauntily over his shoulder. Am I beautiful, he asks. I sweep him into my arms and plant a kiss on his cheek. Always, honey, always. So I think about um, how our culture is with groups of people, right? So like separated by that race or gender or the physical. Like To me it still seems odd to hate people based on their physical bodies, but I know it's so ingrained in people. It's like, aren't we past this? I have to ask myself, are we moving beyond this now? Right? Can't people just be happy? Loving one another? But loving ourselves is the way we love others, the way we authentically love others. I don't really think you could love me if you don't love yourself. I think it's a masquerade as that. But it's always conditional, right? You know how people say it's a thin line between love and hate? or It's like, well, is that ever really love at all? You know, I, I wonder about that. Overall, meta has great power. Kindness has great power. I remember when I was younger, that was the whole movement, random acts of kindness, right? Started a whole, touched off a craze, right? With bumper stickers. People love this because, again, it taps into their true nature, right? When you're 
when you're filled with kindness and friendliness, right, it's contagious, right? You do something as kind act, like, ah, then somebody observes you, and what do they do? They get inspired. This is why your practice helps the world. Somebody, people have been asking that question, I'm doing metta, is it helping the person? I've done hours of metta for my mom, is it helping her, you know? You know, better be working. She better feel better when I get home, you know. I've been sitting here, you know, (laughs) suffering. (laughs) Of course it helps the world. Of course it helps. It helps everybody. It might not look like how we want it to look, right? Then we go home and suddenly somebody who's a curmudgeon is all jumping up and down and excited about life. But what happens is it changes you, and then your energy changes others, right? Because people, people are affected. We're all connected. So one loving being, I'm so always inspired by people who do beautiful things in front of me. Aren't you? I mean, we read stories about it. We, we oh my God, that woman in Alaska saved those cats. And then we want to go do it, right? I mean, this is, this is how it happens, right? We're, we are um, mirrors for each other. Right? And we think, well, I can do it. She did. Right? This is how we affect each other. We create a love field where that behavior is cherished, where we long, where we celebrate friendliness. I love when the Dalai Lama says, my religion is kindness. Like, what are, what are you practicing? Can we make this our religion? Instead of trying to figure out complex philosophical discussions, like, let's Often people come to retreat like that, and I just look at them and said, "Let's just focus on love. Can you be kind? Let's let's not get into complex, you know, emptiness philosophies. And like, are you happy? Do you, are you good to yourself? This is more of the urgent need in the matter, in my mind. <laughs> and I think that others agree with me here. You know, we can combine that though, wisdom too. So we practice for the benefit of all beings. We practice also because it makes us happy. Like this is the great mystery, right? What leads to lasting happiness? Altruism. Authentic altruism leads to happiness. I think that's how my grandmother, even in poverty with so much stress and all these different things, and, and had a sort of happy spirit, You know, it's like, okay, well, this is, I bear the brunt of this. The Buddha, he wrote, the greatest protection, the greatest protection in all the world is loving kindness. The greatest protection in all the world is loving kindness. What could that mean? We live in countries where our greatest protection is war, nuclear bombs. Our greatest protection is loving kindness. I think that's so interesting that that's what was said. Also, one of the other quotes that I love, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law, the Buddha. So that also has our own hatred, our own self-hatred. That is hatred, right? And we heal that through metta. That's why I think that the practice is so valuable. But it's hard, and it takes patience, right? Did you have to find patience in the last few days? It's like we keep on, right? 
We keep on planting, we keep on planting, we keep on planting, we keep on phrase after phrase after phrase. And this is the other, one of the last qualities I want to talk about is we need patience for this practice. You need patience to transform your mind. One of the things about the Dharma is that it's not one of those instant things. At Insight Meditation Society in the East Coast, they once got a, a letter that said, Instant Meditation Society, addressed to Instant Meditation. For some reason, they thought that was so funny, and they had it up on the bulletin board. They're like, nope. <laughs> As you see, you know, we can't just go to one retreat and go, self-love done, you know? It's like, it's layers. So what we do is, while we're waiting, we have patience, <laughs> You know, why we practice, we have patience. A story I like that sort of speaks to this called Two More Isles. A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her basket. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies and her mother told her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss and the mother said quietly, Now, Monica, we just have half of the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset. It won't be long. Soon they came to the candy aisle, and the little girl began to shout loudly for candy. And when told she couldn't have any, began to cry quite loud. The mother said, There, there, Monica. Don't cry. Only two more aisles to go, and then we'll be checking out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there'd be no gum purchased. The mother patiently said, Monica, we'll be through this checkout stand in five minutes and then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man who observed them followed them to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother said, I'm Monica. My little girl's name is Tammy. (laughs) (laughs) So sometimes it's just that way, you know, you're just hanging on to the next, the sitting will be over soon, then we'll have lunch. And then it'll be all nice again, right? We sort of work with ourselves in that way, whatever's happening in the mind. It's important that um, the wisdom gives us longevity, right? It gives us a sense of like we don't lose hope. We commit and we stay steady. Drop by drop, the bucket gets filled. We don't give up on love. It's a famous quote also. Keep thinking of His Holiness tonight where he says, never give up. No matter what happens, never give up. Never, never give up. And he goes on like that for some time. Never, never give up. Um, And it does work. And sometimes there's difficulty and we learn compassion when it's hard. We learn steadiness when it's hard. If it was always perfect, we wouldn't really learn these other qualities. Right? Sometimes we have to go through very intense things in our lives, right? And we can lose kind of give up on love, like, oh, that doesn't work. Right? I, I'm suffering or this is happening. But it's important that we see 
the long-term view, right? We see the long path. We kind of take a mature place and a place in the Dharma with maturity. When I first started practicing, I remember thinking, oh, this will be a quick fix, right? Great. And I, and after five years, I was like, okay, another five years. Okay. And then not now, you know, after another five years, I think, wow, this is going to be like 50 years later. Right. And it's like, you just, you just keep going because life keeps happening. It's the stream. We're still in the boats. We're still going. Wake up another moment. Can I be kind today? Okay, let's keep walking forward. You know, there's a certain maturity in that, right? I keep going, I keep going, I keep practicing. We keep working. Margaret Mead, she said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And I think sometimes meta is a revolution, right? If we all loved ourselves, what, I think capitalism would cease to exist. It only exists on ourself, you know, craving, deluded hatred, trying to get better, right? Things shift when we shift. Life shifts when we shift. So we practice, we come back, we say the phrases again, we say the phrases again, right? When something arises and there's fear or sadness or rage comes, we keep practicing, right? When there's real, real suffering, we turn toward it with kindness. This practice right here will be your biggest refuge, the the one that turns the hand towards the heart. In any moment that you're having a hard time, this is so ingrained because I practice it so much that any time I feel stressed, I usually immediately am like this, oh honey, what's wrong? Okay, we can be with this. What's going on? That turn to self-love, to self-care, to self-compassion. If you walk away with one thing from this retreat, let it be that. That you turn toward yourself like this. Because that's what we want from somebody else usually, right? We want them to empathize. But if we can do it first, turn toward ourselves. That's huge. Really important. Compassion. And then when the whatever storm is passes and we go back to the phrases again, right? Wishing well, wishing well. So um, I just end this, our time together with one of, one of these funny little stories I have. It's kind of childlike, but you know, in some way we're all just children. <laughs> uh, it's called a cry for help. Once upon a time, there was an island where all the feelings lived. Happiness, sadness, and all the others, including love. One day, it was announced to the feelings that the island would sink. So all repaired their boats and left. Love was the only one who stayed. Love wanted to persevere until the last possible moment. So when the island was almost sinking, love decided to ask for help. Richness was passing by love in a grand boat. Love said, Richness, can you take me with you? Richness answered, No, I can't. There's a lot of gold and silver in my boat. There's no place for you here. Love decided to ask Vanity, who was passing by in a beautiful vessel. Vanity, please help me. 
Hmm, I can't help you, love. You're all wet and you might damage my boat, Vanity answered. Sadness was close by, so love asked for help. Sadness, let me go with you. Oh, love, I'm so sad. I need to be by myself. Sorry. (laughs) Happiness passed by love, too, but she was so overly happy she didn't hear when love called again and again and again. (laughs) Suddenly there was a voice. Come, love, I will take you. It was an elder. Love felt so blessed and overjoyed that he forgot to ask the elder their name. When they arrived at dry land, the elder went her own way. Love, realizing how much he owed to elder, that elder asked knowledge, another elder. Knowledge, who helped me? It was time, knowledge answered. Time, asked love, but why did time help me? Knowledge smiled with deep, deep wisdom and answered, because only time is capable of understanding how great love is. So I think on that note, (laughs) we'll just sit for a couple of moments here. Thank you. And may all beings everywhere, every dimension, animals included, all beings, this whole earth be happy and peaceful. (laughs) 